Before we get started with this episode of American Rabbi Project, a few quick things. First of all, if you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can do so by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Also, I am officially on the speaking circuit, so to say. If you're interested in having me speak to your group of any size, please shoot me an email, justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. And of course, I can do virtual presentations. Finally, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. It's a Jewish tradition to leave rocks when visiting a person's grave instead of flowers. I like that. It's a very meaningful activity to go on a search for someone's rock. This was the case during my road trip. I always planned to visit the graves of my great-grandparents when I got to Philadelphia, so I was on the lookout for rocks wherever I went. Not just any rocks, but the right rocks. I finally found them on the shores of Lake Michigan at Indiana Dunes National Park. They both were smoothed and shiny from the water, and I know my great-grandmother liked the water. And Poppy, my great-grandfather, his rock was a little more rough but had a nice warm color to it. So I carried these rocks for quite a while, almost as another totem of protection along with my Karzuza. Growing up, my grandmom would tell me stories about when her family would go to Mount Sharon Cemetery on Rosh Hashanah and Mother's Day to pray at the graves. As a kid, she would spend that time playing in the empty fields. When I visited in early November of 2018, those fields were full of graves, almost on top of one another, with many leaning over. It seemed sad and maybe a little forgotten. Many people in Mount Sharon are immigrants or first-generation Americans. They fled the pogroms of Eastern Europe seeking a better life. Many of their kids, like my grandmom, have moved on from the old neighborhoods of South Philly, spreading out and multiplying across the city and the country. So maybe these beat-up gravestones are really a solid foundation of something that's still very much alive today. Rocks do not weather. They glisten when the rain comes down and can be packed with a myriad of shades and crystals and consistencies. You can find rocks anywhere, but to find the rock takes time and energy. I think that adds a unique dimension or positive charge to the ones brought to graves. It's not a cold, unfeeling stone on an old tomb. It's it's placing a little bit of life back at its source. Pennsylvania, out of Egypt. The one thing I didn't do on my road trip while in Philly was collect an interview, but I got another chance when I went back east in May for a family bar mitzvah. After all the mazel tovs and the reunions and the electric slides, of course the electric slides, I jumped in a rental car and drove from Boston to Baltimore in a day, making a pit stop in Philadelphia. I spoke to Albert Gabai, the rabbi at what many consider to be the synagogue of the American Revolution. My name is Albert Gabai. I'm the rabbi of Congregation Mikveh Israel. It's the Spanish Portuguese synagogue in the city of Philadelphia, founded in 1740. 
Mikveh Israel is one of five congregations that predate the U.S. All of those were originally founded in the Sephardic tradition because it was primarily the Sephardim who were the first Jews to settle in America. Nowadays, Mikveh Israel and Sheriff Israel in New York are the only two of the original five still completely in the Sephardic tradition. As mentioned in previous episodes, the congregations in South Carolina and Georgia are now Reform, and the Toro Synagogue in Rhode Island has also taken on more Ashkenazi traditions, yet it remains orthodox, a term many would use for mikveh Israel in Philadelphia. We don't call ourselves orthodox, even though we maintain the tradition as has been since the beginning to this day, because at that time in 1740, there was no such label as called orthodox. There was first no other movements, there was no reform, no conservative. Therefore, there was no label, so we kept the tradition, and if people ascribe to us the word orthodox, you, know, you can call us any name you want. We keep the tradition as it is. Gabai says this commitment to tradition is so important, he can only think of one major change in the last 300 years. We no longer say prayer for King George III. Mikveh Israel gets the title Synagogue of the American Revolution because it was a place of refuge for many Jews during the war. A lot of the other synagogues and Jewish communities were in British-controlled territory. That includes Sheriff Israel in New York, which, according to legend, was spared from the torches of redcoats thanks to a Jewish Hessian soldier. One of Mikveh Israel's congregation members, Chaim Solomon, is credited with playing a pivotal role in financing the American army during the war. Like many founding fathers, he also was a slaveholder. Over the years, congregation members have helped to form many organizations, including the National Council of Jewish Women, Jewish Theological Seminary, Jewish Publication Society, American Jewish Committee, and Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Mikveh Israel also founded and maintains the National Museum of American Jewish History, which, side note, I can personally say is a great thing to do in Philly, especially when you can't get into Independence Hall due to a lack of advanced planning. This congregation has been a leader congregation, and therefore, and also innovative. So if they founded all these organizations, so the basis was made when mass immigration of Jews came, then the foundations were already established by this congregation. Don't forget, the Jewish capital of America in the 19th century was Philadelphia because before it became New York in the 20th century. And therefore, everything started here from Philadelphia. And therefore, people look up to us to set the example. In a lot of ways, Mikveh Israel and the institutions it helped create have left an impression on many Jews in America. As for Philadelphia, well, that impressed Gabai from a young age. Oh, when I was a kid, I had pictures of Philadelphia. And I, all of grass, green, Liberty Bell, Benjamin Franklin, I very vivid in my mind, those pictures. And uh, so I said, one day I'm going to go to Philadelphia, I'm going to see, I'm going to see what it is. And it was quite a dream, seeing as Gabai grew up on the other side of the planet in Egypt. The community in, uh, of Jews in Egypt was made up of, of Jews who came from different parts of the world, particularly after the opening of the Suez Canal. They came from different backgrounds, from, from France, from Italy, from Greece, from Morocco, from Turkey, from the land of Israel, and from Baghdad. I grew up in the, the main synagogue in Cairo. It's called Shar Shamaim, downtown. 
Jews had a presence in Egypt since well before the Common Era. At times, it was actually a place of refuge, like when Alexander the Great conquered Judea or during the Spanish Inquisition. It was also the home of the legendary Talmudic scholar, philosopher, and physician Moses ben Maimon, also referred to as Maimonides or Rambam. But things changed in the 20th century. Gabai stresses the point that he grew up in Egypt but is not an Egyptian Jew. That's not just by personal preference, it's actually legal. In 1929, the Jews of Egypt were stripped of their citizenship. I grew up during Nasser era, which was very difficult for, for the Jews, very difficult because of the fear of being tortured by, uh, by, uh, by the government uh, just for being a Jew or being accused of being a quote-unquote Zionist spy. Uh, so it was very difficult. Things got worse for the Jews of Egypt and other Arab countries with the creation of the modern state of Israel. After Israel declared independence in 1948, there were fatal bombings of Jewish sections of Egyptian cities, and some Jews were detained and sent to prison camps. This was further inflamed with the fall of the Egyptian monarchy and the rise of the new leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and his police state. In school, I went to Catholic schools, and in school we had uh, Jews and Christians and Muslims and, and Arabs, and we were uh, in the schools, we were absolutely together, and there was no discrimination in the school. Outside the school, you have to be very careful. You don't show your Jewish, Jewishness, you don't talk about anything about politics, none whatsoever. <clears throat> when, you, when you go to synagogue, you look around, you know, make sure that Nobody's going to jump on you. And uh, you go to synagogue, you leave the synagogue, you go back home. Uh, being observant, it was more, uh, at home and in the synagogue. But outside, you never showed uh, your uh, Jewishness. They also felt the pressure economically. In 1954, Nasser nationalized most industries. Jews were stripped of their businesses, and it was hard to find work because of a 1947 law that restricted employment opportunities for non-citizens. Tens of thousands of Jews fled the country. In order to do so, they were forced to surrender all of their assets and promised to never return. Gabai was in the process of getting out in 1967. Then the Six-Day War began. We were waiting for, um, for the exit visas, which were not easy to get. We were supposed to leave that summer. And then the war came and they rounded up and stayed. Most remaining Jewish males were placed in internment camps with horrid conditions and rampant abuse. It was not pleasant. It was very bad. But certainly nothing to compare with the death camps of Europe. Nothing to compare. That's very important to know because there was no death. The only thing that we uh, had in common is the lack of certainty of when to get out. Uh, so it was like indefinite. We never lost hope, but it was difficult not to know when is that nightmare gonna end. That was the most difficult part that we had to deal with. The rest was physical level. You can deal always with the physical level. But uh, that aspect was difficult for us. When are we gonna get out? When they're gonna solve the whole Middle East problem? Then we'll be there for the rest of our days. 
Gabai spent three years in an Egyptian internment camp before he was released. Today, even though relations between Egypt and Israel are pretty amicable, all things considered, the Jewish community of Egypt has been reduced to a tiny, tiny number of older women. Everyone else, including Gabai, left. They told us uh, the Red Cross is allowing you to get out. Sign here that you'll never come back. I said, what do I sign? And signed that, and it just took us from the prison camps with handcuffs into a truck, and in the truck to the airport, and from the airport to the plane inside. That's when inside on the plane they removed the handcuffs, and the plane was at Air France. He flew out to Paris. And shortly after that, he made it to America. When I landed uh, here in uh, at JFK Airport, it was a January. It was a snowy, day, snowy night, and the music was playing. If I were a rich man, la, la, la. <laughs> and I'd seen Freedom on the Roof in French in Paris, so I recognized the melody. And when I landed in New York, the first trip outside of the New York City was Philadelphia. I took the bus, came here. I loved it. It would take another 18 years for Gabai to become the rabbi for Mikveh Israel. In that time, he worked in insurance, considered medical school, and served as a chazan or cantor for Sheriff Israel in New York. But eventually, in 1988, the kid from Cairo who used to dream of Philadelphia became the rabbi of Philly's oldest and most revered congregation. What is very important for us to know is that we live in a free country and we should not take for granted the freedom that we have in this country. We have freedom of religion. Anybody here can worship the way they want. Unfortunately, I speak with other people and they take that for granted to the point even that they become, unfortunately, people look at it negative. They have negative opinion of this country. Some I'm not saying a lot. They don't realize the richness that we have, the blessing that we have. Every day we have to, 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 to thank God that you are here. After growing up in a place where he had to hide his Judaism, Gabai now proudly displays it. And he thinks, just like how some people take America for granted, some also take their Judaism for granted. Yes, there is assimilation. There are people who have dropped some aspect of Judaism and some, or somebody maintained. We have maintained our tradition. We have not dropped it. Yet, we are 100% American, right? So you have a Protestant that is a Protestant American. You have a Catholic that is American. You have a black that is American. You have a Jew that is American. Why should a Jew say, no, I've got to, to take aspect of the Protestant Americans or the Catholics of Protestant? Why can they, why can it, can they not be Jewish American? Like everybody else. Why not? This brings up a concept that has been discussed by other rabbis in this podcast. The idea movements like Reform and Conservative, which were born out of the European emancipation, took on some Christian appearances to blend in better with their non-Jewish neighbors. Others say it was done to make Judaism more accessible to lay people and to be more relevant and meaningful for modern times. The question of how to blend tradition and modernity is debated by Jews all over. For Gabbai, the answer is a strict application makes for strong Judaism. In 
1789, when the ratification of the Constitution was made, there was a celebration here in Philadelphia. And there was a delegation from every part of the society, including the clergy. And the rabbi of this congregation, together with the pastor of Christ Church, walked in the procession, arm in arm, together, in the procession. At the end of the procession, there was a table of kosher food for the Jewish delegation. So from that, we learned that when we respect ourselves and our tradition, other people respect us. Gabai thinks assimilation is a big driver behind interreligious marriage. So it has been uh, proven statistically that uh, those who go to Jewish schools, the rate of uh, interfaith marriage is very, very, very small. The best approach to uh, interfaith marriage is education. There's no doubt about that. When people are proud of their heritage and want to maintain and practice that heritage, they will look for a spouse which has the same values and so that children also will, will have the transmission from the parents to the children of that heritage. According to Pew Research, 44% of married Jewish people wed outside of their religion, a number that goes up with each new generation. This report also shows that percentage much larger for less observant Jews, although pride in Judaism is high across the board. Interfaith marriage rates are virtually zero for Orthodox Jews, but it's not unheard of. So it's a fact of life for the Jewish community. And Gabai says while he doesn't support it, it should not be grounds to ostracize someone. Well, first of all, you have to understand that in Judaism, we, we have a very important principle that says that as God is merciful and compassionate, we have to be merciful and compassionate with, 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 with human beings. It's a very important aspect of Judaism. So you have a situation where somebody has a lot of feelings about another person, which is love, etc., and they want to continue. The question is not whether that love continues. Is the same value will be with you in, in this house? Is that what you want for your children? If that's what you want, then I cannot do anything about it, but I can help you out to uh, work out to the best of our ability of how to do. We are, we as rabbis, are in position to advise, to to help out somebody, to give them some some words of of support. But I will tell you something at the at the bottom line: I will not officiate at a wedding that is not to Jewish people. It's all part of the changing face of American Judaism. However, Gabai thinks there are some key things that all Jews should be unified on. When it comes to political things, many of the Jews lean to the left. You can lean to the left or to the right, it doesn't matter. However, when it comes to, to, um, to issues that affect us globally, we should be united. For instance, the issue of Israel has to unite all of us. And become, it is also a very important issue because a human being realizes the value of something very often when it is missing. When it is taken for granted, People do not give it as much value as it is. But when you have a country that is always uh, struggling for its survival, survival, then we have to be very careful with what we do because that will affect the state itself. Israel and Israeli politics can make for some lively discussions. 
many diaspora Jews will say they have a stake or a right or a responsibility to discuss the policies and actions of the Jewish state. Others counter by saying, if you really want to criticize Israel or work to change its policies, you must do so by living in the country and working from within. That belief Gabai supports. We are all Jews in this world, of course. We are one people. But those who elect their leader, their government, are the Israelis themselves. And therefore, we cannot tell them what to do because it's a democratic system. So even, I will go even one step further, that we should not criticize the politics of Israel in public. You have something to say, by all means go ahead and say it to, the, to them in private. But in public, you are, you are going to lead other people to even say, even the Jews are criticizing Israel. Therefore, I can do it. And therefore, it's danger for Israel. As for the dangers Jews face in America, Gabai doesn't think much has changed with the shootings in Pittsburgh and Poway. The difference now, he says, is it's getting more violent. And like other rabbis interviewed for this podcast, he worries that it could one day lead to a situation like in Europe and other countries where heavily armed guards are needed outside of synagogues. As for combating the hatred, education is key. Many things can be solved by education. I'll give you an example. God forbid, God forbid, if you're in a group of people and you say something that is racist against blacks, where will you be standing? You, you cannot even hide under the table, right? If somebody says something against a Jew, some people will take it for granted, you know, so, so it's a small thing, no big deal. You know. The same vociferous attack on that person who says something against uh, a racist against a black should be the same vociferous situation when somebody says something against Jews. Exactly of the same thing, because we are all equal. Not because he's black, you can do that. Or not because he's a Jew, you can do that. No, they're all the same. So therefore, society has to think that somebody's anathema, whether he does this, this or that, it should be equally done. It should be from the highest level of government to the lowest uh, common people. Everybody should be the same thing. And the media should be the first one to bring that up very clearly. Gabai has experienced a lot in his time. He's lived in a country that went to war with Israel. He's gone to prison for the, quote, crime of being Jewish. He's been a stateless person, an immigrant, an insurance agent, the chazan of a pre-United States congregation, and the rabbi of another pre-United States congregation. For a man of tradition, he's seen a lot of change. I asked him where he sees Judaism 40 years from now. Oh, I think it would be wonderful 40 years from now particularly for those who have kept the tradition. For those who have not kept the tradition, uh, the outlook is not so, so, so bright because they will be assimilated in the general population. I don't know, they're going to imitate, I don't know, the Protestants, the Catholic, or the, who knows what they're going to imitate. Uh, but they will be, uh, they'll be um, nondescript American. Uh, those who will keep the tradition will be proud Jewish American. American Jews, proud. And they will continue what has been started from 1654 with the first 23 Jews here. They will continue, maybe in less of numbers, but it will be a good future. After my discussion with Rabbi Albert Gabai, I hopped back in the rental car and continued on to Baltimore. 
The first hour out of Philly was silent. Partially because I couldn't figure out how to work the overcomplicated sound system in the car, but mostly I was digesting everything I had heard. The history, the modern-day exodus, and the tradition. And it seemed like a lot of things came full circle. I interviewed a man who fled pogroms in the old country before settling in Philadelphia, just like my ancestors had done. I went to the bar mitzvah of a cousin whose Hebrew name paid homage to my great-grandparents. And five months after the end of my around-the-country road trip, I went back out again and talked to more rabbis. And with every interview, there was more to think about. American Rabbi Project, Pennsylvania, Out of Egypt, was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. If you like what you're hearing, please consider donating to this podcast. You can find out more by going to my website, rabbiproject.com, and clicking on the Donate tab up top. Thanks to Derek Pova for handling the web stuff and being a good hiking partner. Also, thanks to Jeremy Crone, Sarit Rathbone, Beth Vanderstoop, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. Please feel free to reach out to me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com or follow me on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject and facebook.com slash rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving. <laughs>